grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi and welcome to Adopt Perspective. I'm your host, Jo Sparrow. Today's guest is Sarah Dingle, a dual Walkley Award-winning investigative reporter and presenter with the ABC, working across radio and TV current affairs, news and documentary. Her work has won the UN's Media Prize and the Voiceless Media Prize, and her radio documentaries have been recognised by the Australian Human Rights Commission, Amnesty International and the National Press Club. Sarah is the author of an incredible book that we're going to be talking about today, Brave New Humans, The Dirty Reality of Donor Conception, published by Hardy Grants Books in 2021. The book is an astonishing real-life whodunit and investigative expose revealing the uncomfortable realities of assisted reproduction and its human fallout. And it also chronicles Sarah's experience as a donor-conceived person. Sarah is also about to release a documentary by the same name on SBS. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. I've long been anticipating this interview with you. Thank you for having me. Sarah, your book is a masterful piece of investigative work that left me wanting to punch walls and scream at times. As an adopted person from the closed adoption era, these are emotions I've often felt about my own experience also. And there's quite a lot of overlap between the experiences of adopted people and donor conceived people that you write about, isn't there? There is. And can I say, I feel um, very privileged to be on this podcast. Um, You know, there is a lot of um, uh, similarities between adoption and donor conception. Um, I wouldn't say that I, you know, I wouldn't pretend to know everything about adoption. Um, and, and you know, I, I think any adoptee would say the same, but reverse. But um, I certainly in writing this book, um, I, I wanted to make clear, and I hope it comes acro- across my enormous respect for all the, the work and the fight that has gone into um, the adoption debate on the behalf of, you know, by adoptees and by birth parents to make things right because it has laid such solid foundations um, for the future and it is something that, you know, in donor conception we point to, uh, we want to build on and we're standing on your shoulders essentially. Yeah. I mean, it really has laid a bit of a pathway for you guys because there is so much crossover. And I think that's one of the reasons that adopted and donor can see people have such a great deal of empathy for each other's experiences and why Jigsaw Queensland has always included supporting and advocating for donor can see people in their constitution. The rapid decrease in the availability of domestic babies for adoption actually after the 1970s had a domino effect on assisted reproductive services, didn't it? 
it did. It really, um, perhaps I'd go further than dominoes, it kind of blew it up. Mm -hmm. So the fact that all of a sudden there were less children available for adoption uh, meant that, you know, in the words of one fertility pioneer, Alan Trounson, like, you know, another solution had to be found. He literally said that this was the, 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 the way to deal with that decrease in supply. And I use the word supply very deliberately because we all know that this is a market. There are market forces uh, in play. So uh, when the supply of adoptees dried up because of, you know, greater acceptance by society of single mothers, because of greater availability of contraception, because of societal forces like that, all of a sudden there was demand that was not being met in any way, shape or form by supply. And that is why you really see assisted reproductive technology, which has always been there, um, you know, for most of the 20th century, really ramping up in the 70s and particularly the 80s. As those adoption laws came in, the records were open, practices were improved somewhat. They needed to find more babies. Um, yeah. They started to make them. And it was actually completely fascinating as you talk through this history and the history of donor conception in general in your book. What can you tell us about it? Um, well, I, I do not, I want to say that I do not by any means think everything is fixed in adoption. It is certainly not. Yeah. But all the learnings from adoption, um, the importance of family ties and, you know, don't steal children and uh, how not to brutalise childhoods, all those sorts of things, even though those learnings were taking place very publicly, there was a lot of public debate about them um, as they, you know, as adoption laws were passed and so on and so forth, None of those learnings were then applied to assisted reproductive technology. Yeah. So, you know, you literally have, within a space of months, laws being passed saying all adoptees should know their birth parents. And then, you know, a month or two later, uh, laws being passed saying no donor-conceived children shall ever know their biological parents. Um, and... It comes down to money. There's a lot of money in the fertility industry uh, and a lot of certainly, particularly in those days, it was a very male-dominated industry, a lot of money, a lot of men, a lot of careers and egos on the line as everyone sort of raced for firsts. Um, we've got the first test tube baby over here, the first egg donor baby over here, uh, but zero kind of sociology, <laughs> yeah. zero um uh, empathetic thinking, um, zero, they did not place any importance uh, in the humanity of those children um, and they did not employ any experts who could have told them that this was going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me is how um, the patient, the person that was concerned were the prospective parents who were going through um, donor conception without any thought of the the resultant child having any import or any needs or any, you know, um, repercussions as a result of how they were conceived. Yeah, that's right. So um, the fertility industry, I mean, the first fertility clinic opens opened its doors in Sydney 
um, the first Australian fertility clinic in 1938. Wow. Donor conception has been provided in the clinical setting since at least the 1940s in Australia. But it really, as I say, booted up in the 70s and the 80s. And what they did for all those decades, they deliberately, they would you know, in my case, for instance, they noted the physical characteristics of the father and there was a chart that were like hair, brown, eyes, blue, blah, blah, blah. And then they would try to match uh, that particular couple where the husband was infertile with a donor who had the same physical characteristics, who looked like the father to minimise the possibility of, you know, embarrassing revelations. They told recipient parents who went to clinics for fertility treatment to lie. They told them to just go home, have sex, pretend that they never went to a clinic in the first place, pretend that this is your natural born child. Um, so like a whole lot of shame and secrecy is both overtly and covertly being pushed by these practices. Um, and then, of course, you have the erasure laws which are being passed, uh, like New South Wales, which was passed in 1984, saying explicitly um, that any child born as a result of donor conception, uh, where, you know, donor sperm has been used, shall be presumed to be the child of the woman's partner, the mother's partner. It shall not be the child of the man who provided that sperm. Um, and for decades, that was the only legislation that existed with regards to donor conception in New South Wales. So nothing about um, any other aspect of donor conception, uh, human rights, you know, right to family, nothing. It was just you are not the biological child of the person that you are the biological child of and therefore yeah. cannot inherit any money. Um, which is, of course, nonsense because, I mean, you can pass a law saying that my eyes are blue, but they are brown and they will be brown my entire life. It, it's just a, it's a nonsense of human law. Yeah, absolutely. It just astounds me sometimes and then at other times it doesn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Sarah, probably 85% of the episodes that we release on Adopt Perspective are personal stories and one of those reasons is that we know that policy writers, politicians and decision makers across Australia are listening to the podcast and we know this because they tell us they are and um, they've actually used some of the episodes when working on inquiries in other states um, and reports, things like that. I recently spoke to Julia Gillard about her experience as Prime Minister in the lead up to the National Apology for Forced Adoptions. And she confirmed to me as well that it's personal stories speaking truth to power that resonates most with politicians and gets things like apologies and redress over the line. However, repeatedly sharing a personal trauma is draining and it comes at a personal cost to the people who share. So your decision to share your personal story, which in my opinion is what elevates Brave New Humans into a book that cannot help but shift perceptions of readers, um, I think was a, a great decision to make. And I wonder if you might share with us um, the story of how you discovered that you were donor conceived. Sure. So um, I'm I'm late discovery. Uh, not the latest I know, but pretty damn late. So uh, I was 27 years old and it was Easter. And I'd taken my mum out to dinner 
at a Vietnamese restaurant because, um, you know, she's not a big chocolate fan. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we were sitting there having dinner and I said to her, Mum, did you ever have any trouble having me? Um, and this is not a subject I'd ever broached before. I wasn't one of those children that grew up playing with dolls. I'd never really, you know, been a, a family's kind of person. And, um, and she said, why do you ask? And I said, well, I don't really want to have children soon, anytime soon, but, you know, I just sort of was just planning. I was just wondering if there was anything I should know about, like a deadline I should work towards or something. Um, I think we've all seen women over the years We've all heard the story of the woman who left it a bit late, who was doing, you know, whatever job or otherwise engaged and then found it very difficult to have children. And I didn't want to be that person. So I asked her the question and her answer was not what I expected. She just, she looked at me and she said, well, we, you know, we tried to have children and it turned out we couldn't, your father couldn't. So we used a donor. Wow. And I just, <laughs> I said, oh, you're joking. <laughs> uh, and she said, no. And I said, oh, you're joking. And I, I, I said to her, you're joking a number of times because I just couldn't, she's not a joker. And, and this is not a joke she would ever make anyway, but um, it, it, it didn't, I couldn't take it in. I know some donor can see people and some adoptees always have an inkling. I never had an inkling. So there's this thing between us now that does not compute for me. And then when it finally sort of sunk in and stuff, I just wanted to, had a really violent internal reaction. I wanted to scream and I wanted to smash everything that I saw in that restaurant. And I wanted to go to the bathroom and throw up. Um, and, of course, I couldn't really do any of those things apart from escape to the bathroom because we're in this nice restaurant mm. and it's, you know, there's a, a lovely little hush and people are enjoying their meals. And <laughs> um, so I just, I went to the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror and everything was, you know, like the lights, you know, the sound was going, whoa, um, Came out after a while. We finished our meal. Very nice. Went home. And I just, I just, I curled up on the couch and I bawled. I cried and I cried and I cried. Uh, and that was how I found out. Wow. I'm just taking a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I know um, your mum said to you something in the time, at the time about, you know, is that's okay or something, isn't it? Or that's all right. Yeah. How did you yeah. respond to her? I mean... After she told me, she, it was like she didn't mean to tell me. It just kind of went, bleh. It just yeah. came out. And then she went, but it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter because the only reason you would ever need to know is for your medical history, your family medical history, because your father was your father and it doesn't matter, does it? And, I, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm... I listened to answers for a living. So I knew what she was asking me. She was asking me to say that it didn't matter because that's what she needed to hear in that moment. Mm -hmm. 
And my priority was, as I said, to get to that bathroom and either smash everything or throw up. (laughs) So I was just like, no, no, it doesn't matter. And that was obviously a lie. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I was sorry to read in your book that your dad had passed away when you were only 15. How did that disclosure impact your memory of and connection with him, if at all? Um, when my dad died, he died in an accident. So it was very sudden. And I thought that was the worst thing that would ever happen to me. Um, And I'd never had any doubts that he was my dad, despite the fact that I don't look anything like him because I'm, you know, I'm Eurasian. I don't really look like anyone. Um, And so after my mum told me the truth, it was like he died a second time because I loved him very much and he loved me and he was, you know, all about me. He was a great dad. I'm so lucky. Um, But what happened after I knew the truth was it was like, you fool, he was never yours in the first place. And I thought it was very unfair that someone could die twice. I didn't realise that was possible, but that's what it felt like. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you for saying that. Uh, So this revelation uh, that you just had ended up leading you down a twisting path of personal discovery about the unscrupulous world of donor-assisted reproduction. Can you tell us some of the things that you found out? Absolutely. Um, It was sort of, I mean, what I decided to do, I, I fell into this hole of depression and after a few months I thought, I need to get out of this. I investigate stuff for a living. I, I, I have the skills. I will journalism my way out of this problem. Um, so I started to try to find out everything I could about, you know, my biological father and what had happened. And I, I kept hitting roadblocks. Um, so first of all, I went back to the clinic that made me, the public clinic of the Royal North Shore Hospital. And it no longer existed because it had been sold, subsumed, taken over, like gobbled up by the private sector, along with all its records um, in a process which no one could explain to me. Um, And then I was told I wasn't allowed to have access to my mother's treatment file anyway, because I had no right to it um, without her permission. And then when I finally got her permission, I was told that there were holes cut in it. And then when I asked about the holes, um, it turned out that there was nothing wrong with holes being cut out in medical files um, because there was no law against that. And then when I looked into the laws, I was like, oh, there were no laws at all. And then, (laughs) you know, you just, you pull a thread and the whole thing just goes. Um, And then I realised that, um, you know, everything was pretty dodgy around the country and half the country still had no laws on donor conception. And then I realised that, women had been killed by fertility specialists and eggs had been swapped and sperm had been traded and there were like mass litters of, you know, potentially hundreds of half-siblings in Australia alone um, and the potential for accidental incest was huge 
And I could go on and on and on. Uh, it was just, I don't even know how they pretend that everything is fine because there is a like a gaping abyss <laughs> in our society that this industry has created and no one wants to deal with the problem. Yeah. It's shocking and maddening. I can just imagine you finding all of that kind of stuff out and just going, holy Jesus, you know, <laughs> how is this even possible? <laughs> and no one even, you're the only one that thinks it's crazy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you and all the other day day was like, am I the crazy one? Yeah. No, no. It's crazy that you mixed the sperm of different men and injected the multi-gamete mess into women. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm not the crazy one. You're the crazy one. <laughs> so I'm um, just like, I guess a little bit of a slightly technical question then. Um, is donor conception often used in association with IVF? Do they operate side by side? Yeah, this is something that um, there's not a lot of uh, mainstream understanding of, of the terms. There's a bit of confusion, which I get. I totally get because, I mean, why, why would you? Mm-hmm. Um, but so IVF is often used for shorthand, as shorthand for everything to do with fertility treatment, which is not the case. IVF is just kind of like a procedure. Uh, donor conception is when you use the egg or the sperm from someone else, not in your relationship, to create a child or the embryo donated by, you know, someone else or maybe you've paid for egg and sperm to be put together in an embryo. Um, it's third-party material, basically. You can use that third-party material um, for IVF, which is where the embryo is grown in vitro in glass and then implanted in the body. Uh, or you can get uh, an intrauterine injection, which is where they inject sperm into your body. So you like the, the embryo is, is created in your uterus. Um, you can, there's other procedures. There's something called the gift procedure, uh, which has a very low success rate. It's usually used for religious reasons. So gift, uh, intrauterine insemination, IVF, these are all procedures. Um, but the key thing that I'm talking about is donor conception, which is using third party material. Lots of people use IVF. Most of the time it's just regular IVF with their partner and it, it doesn't use third-party material um, and I find even though I've been banging on about this stuff for about a decade now even some of my best friends get confused when I use these terms and they're like are you against IVF and I'm like I, no yeah <laughs> no I, I, you know that's that's just a thing that's just a thing that you do um, I'm not against IVF I'm talking about the practice of using other people to make your own children yeah yeah and do you have a sense or do we have a sense I guess of how many Australians are even born by donor conception ah no because clinics have never kept records of all the donor conceived people they have made so there was an estimate provided to a senate inquiry in 2010 um, and that estimate was 60 to 80,000 donor conceived people um I would say, given that we're 12 years on from that and, you know, it's very popular and a lot of nefarious stuff has happened, um, I would put the number at about 100,000 or more in Australia mm-hmm. alone. 
Uh, but that's just my kind of rough estimate. I, I have not done any studies um, and no one has. And, you know, there is no firm figure, unfortunately. Yeah. And one of the things I sort of discovered reading your book and other material that I've read more recently in the lead up to the inquiry was that, I mean, also people who fall pregnant as a result of donor conception are under no obligation to come into the clinic and report that they're pregnant from that um, that procedure. And also then there's the whole outside of fertility clinic donor conception that can happen completely privately too, isn't there? Totally. And um, we see private arrangements getting a lot of media attention at the moment because it's like the scandal du jour. You get sperm from some dude on Facebook. Yeah. Um, this is a genuinely terrible idea. I do not recommend doing that uh, because... I mean, so many reasons, but um, there are risks to yourself if you are procuring sperm, for instance, through these means. You could contract sexually transmitted diseases. There is no way of making sure that, you know, there are no sexually transmitted diseases unless that sperm is washed through uh, a medical procedure in a fertility clinic. Um, and there's also this weird phenomenon attached to that called NI or natural insemination where the guys providing the sperm are like, oh, we can do a natural insemination, which means I have unprotected sex with you so that you can fall pregnant, which basically means having unprotected sex with a stranger. And if you were doing that for fun, you would probably think that's not a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the third thing that we have also seen reports of is sexual assault because women meet up with men on Facebook who have promised them sperm and in a hotel or some other neutral quote-unquote location and they try to rape them. Yeah. Um, and that's all before you get to the fact that your child has no legal right to know their biological parent or any of their siblings and you're probably going to have to have a very awkward conversation with them at some point about how you found them on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're a late discovery and we have a lot of late discovery adopter people in the adoption world as well. And we're particularly finding we're discovering more of those now that the um, records have been open so long. So a lot of the people that we would now maybe make contact with through intermediary services have not been told. So it is something that happens with us. But um, do you think there's, a, I get the impression that there's a lot more donor conceived people walking around who don't know that they are. Have you got any thoughts on how many there might be? How many donor conceived people? Yes, yes. How many donor conceived people don't know they're donor conceived? Oh, well, there have been studies done around the world um, that show that donor conceived people who are raised by heterosexual couples uh, are the ones who are least likely to know that they are donor conceived because their parents can pass, quote unquote, as their biological parents. These studies have found that up to 90% wow. donor conceived people will not know that they are donor conceived, let alone who their biological parents actually are. Um, and I would actually add a caveat to those studies because if you're not going to tell your child the truth, why would you participate in a study about not telling your child the truth? So I think the real figure could actually be higher for some of those cohorts 
And when you look at the studies, I mean, there was an extraordinary one um, out of Finland where researchers were sort of contacting heterosexual couples who'd used donor conception to see if they had any intentions to tell. And they reported that not one but two couples, it turned out, not only declined to take part but burned the letter of invitation. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So there are real barriers to knowing the truth when you're donor conceived and raised by heterosexual couples. Um, We know that donor conceived people who are raised by single parent households or by same sex couples are way more likely to be told the truth and told the truth early because logically there must be another biological parent somewhere. Mm. This is a good thing, a very good thing because it's better for, you know, the child's well-being to to always know. However, it doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory because knowing that you are donor-conceived is not the same thing as knowing who your family is, your biological family, or having the ability to contact any of those people. Yeah. I mean, there's a great deal of risk too. You mentioned it before. So um, genetic sexual attraction, it's a thing. So if you're out and about in the community and meeting people and there's something that draws you to them because there might be some similarities and you don't know that you're donor conceived. um, Mm. And even if you do for that matter, like, you know, what are you going to do to say to everyone, can we get a genetic test? (laughs) I mean, that's That's a huge risk. I mean, that's that's the sci-fi world that we live in. Yeah. That is what donor conceived people do. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah and if you do if you don't even know I mean there's there's probably I mean do you have any idea of like figures of how many people could be I mean potentially you're from the same clinic in the same area and could be living all near each other yep yep this is the thing people um you know fertility clinics when questioned about this often say that you know oh there's no risk of incest because we make sure that there's no I don't know how they could possibly make sure there's no risk of incest because not only have they exceeded their stated limits of how many times you know a donor sperm was used for instance Hmm. that's exposed in my book but fertility specialists may think that they're they're very important people but they cannot rule on how their customers live their lives they don't dictate where people live they don't ensure that each patient is equidistant from the next patient around the country. Um, They have no say in people. I mean, you see it particularly in Sydney. It's very ghettoised Sydney. The inner West has a particular culture. Everyone who is in the inner West is, you know, more likely to be into recycling and wearing Birkenstocks. And then you go to the East <laughs> and everyone's more likely to use fake tan and maybe get their hair straightened. I don't know. Um, so people group themselves together in tribes. And if you choose a donor based on particular characteristics, it's highly likely that someone else from your tribe is also going to value the same things that you value. And they will want to use that donor as well. And this is not just me hypothesising. I mean, there's a case study in my book of a Queenslander, Shannon Ashton, who you guys may know about, um, who chose a blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer as her donor. Um, for She had five children. Um, and 
so did many other people. And I think Shannon is currently up to 48 kids that wow. she had from That's this donor. Incredible. And one of those children was in the same family daycare group as one of her own children without her realising that the children were half-siblings. Yeah. Because it was a family daycare group, this is a family daycare group of four. So the chances of you meeting, getting to know, growing up with your half-sibling are now 100%. And this is a real problem. Yeah. And, you know, as a person with lived experience of being adopted in reunions, um, I have found incredible crossovers when I've met my um, biological relatives where, um, you know, my mother ended up marrying the father of a boy I went to school with. This is long before I met her, <laughs> you know, um, so there was crossover there and um, I've walked past them at different times and had I not met them, I wouldn't have known I'd just walked past my parent and, you know, even meeting further extended relatives, there's lots of these weird coincidences of names and things, you know, so there is this weird thing that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um, in your personal experience, again, um, what led you to seeking your father's identity? Well, everyone's different, of course. Um, but I, having lost my father... I suppose I was lucky. <laughs> That's a, that a very strange sentence. Um, no, I, I was lucky in that there was no one that I felt any guilt towards. Mm. Um, there was no one who was going to feel hurt if I sought out my biological father. Yeah. Given the kind, my, kind of guy my dad was, I don't think he would have felt that anyway. Uh, but it wasn't even a conversation that I had to have with myself. Um, and from my point of view, having gone through so much grief um, for the guy who raised me, that grief was like, uh, you know, a, a weight belt just being dragged around by me the whole time, weighing me down. And I thought, what if, what if I can just shuck this weight belt? What if I can let go of all that stuff because it's not the end. I actually have another father out there somewhere and, and I don't have to feel this way all the time. So uh, that combined with a, a dose of healthy curiosity, I think. <laughs> yeah. They were the reasons I went searching. <laughs> and I was going to ask you about um, whether you did actually meet him, what that reunion was like, but I've actually decided not to ask you about that because I would really like people to pick up this book and read it. And I don't want to give that away because um, I think that's something that it's a nice journey through your book to get to that point. And I, so everyone I'd say, go out and buy this book and read it. And I'm not going to ask Sarah about it today. No um, <laughs> During the height of the pandemic, um, assisted reproduction slowed and in some cases halted across Australia. And the result was a lot of press featuring um, very sympathetic coverage of people struggling with infertility, wanting to get things rolling again. And I do recall one segment on the project where they were having this great laugh about a young man doing his bit to help with sperm donation. And you know the kind of stories, you see them all the time. Um, 
The media often provide one-sided and sensitive coverage of this issue and, of course, adoption as well. Um, how does this impact you personally as a donor-conceived person and as a media insider, and how do we educate journalists and producers about this? Well, um, it's a great question. I don't know. I get sort of... I get very angry um, when I see coverage that is ignorant or dismissive or actually extremely damaging to donor-conceived people um, because the narrative always favours the would-be parents and sometimes the donors. Um, and sometimes I, you know, I'm in a position now where I've reported on this stuff so much and I've written a book uh, so I get on Twitter and I'm like, actually, the facts are bang, 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 and you have not stated any of them. Um, but sometimes I don't have the energy to do that, and no one can do that for everything. I think, I mean, there are a number of donor-conceived people also online trying to campaign against this sort of misinformation. We all burn out from time to time. So that's a, a sort of a, a, a punter's solution, if you like. As a journalist, I get calls from other journalists to um, help with their stories on donor conception. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm really glad that they call me because it shows that they're thinking about these things and maybe I can, you know, stop them before they do damage. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of the time it feels like I'm doing a lot of unpaid work and it literally takes me away from my actual job as well as being quite um, you know, uh, emotion intensive. Um, and I don't know what the solution is to that. I think when, when you're adopted, when you're donor conceived, when there's something inherent that you're in you, that you're trying to make better about society, you do end up doing a lot of extra unpaid emotional labor. And the only thing I can say is know when to switch off because um, the world doesn't need you all the time. Yeah. Um, I can completely relate to that with my work with Jigsaw and um, the podcast and all those things. Um, you know, I, I got out of Twitter years ago because I just think it's a really um, toxic kind of environment um, and it's not one I wanted to engage in. Um, but even my private social media I, I don't share a lot of adoption stuff on there really only my work related stuff to help you know, get those algorithms up so that um, more people will see it but aside from that I try not to share too much because sometimes I get comments under my personal page that um, are triggering that can you know make me not feel great and I found that sorting out little boundaries where okay I'm happy to do the podcast I'm happy to do website stuff a little bit of media stuff but you know I figure out what I'm comfortable doing and then I stick to that and I don't go outside of it because otherwise my own mental health suffers. So um, I appreciate that, what you're saying there. And, um, and I think it's really good advice for people. Yeah. Um, so before we go, actually, before we go, I wanted to ask you about the donor, the organisation Donor Conceived Australia, which I know that you're involved with um, and who we at Jigsaw refer people to when they contact us for support. What can you tell us about the organisation? Um, well, it's very exciting. Um, you know, adoptees uh, may be surprised to hear, but 
but we have never had an organization for donor conceived people in Australia that's been run by donor conceived people before. Um, so donor conceived Australia was started, I believe last year. I'm not formally a part of DCA, um, but I think the work that they do is great. And they have in particular uh, taken up the Geneva principles, which I co-authored, which are international principles for donor conception and surrogacy. Um, and they sort of show what these practices would look like in law if they actually upheld the rights of the child. Um, donor Conception Australia is 100% run by donor conceived people and they are speaking to everyone from politicians to punters. Um, and I think it's really great that we finally have an organisation out there that um, we can refer people to. I mean, DCA is doing what it can. It doesn't always have the answers, but at least there's, there's a point of contact um, because the other thing that happens is a lot of people come forward uh, when I speak or reported something or whatever, you know, I get little pings um, emails and messages and stuff going, hi, I'm donor conceived, funny story, I've never met another donor conceived person, and, and or how do I find about, out about this, or, um, you know, what's happening in my state, and finally I can just go, here you are, yeah. <laughs> here is an organisation for yeah. you, um, which is great. So that's very exciting. Um, and the other thing I would say is that Brave New Humans um, my book is being made or has been made into a film. Um, so there's a documentary coming out very soon on SBS, um, which is the documentary based on Brave New Humans and it is called Inconceivable. Um, and it'll be out on November the 1st. Oh, brilliant. And I can't wait to um, watch it. So make sure you keep an eye out for that, everyone. Um, one last thing before you go. Um, in Queensland, we had a report um, into matters relating to donor conception that was tabled in Parliament in August. Um, I know you've had a, a chance to have a quick read of it. Um, what were your thoughts? Oh, I thought it was excellent. I mean, go Queensland. This is one of the best reports on these matters that I have read. Um, a report is not law, so I think the challenge is going to be making sure that everything this parliamentary committee has recommended does in fact come to pass. But if it does, it will make Queensland the leading jurisdiction in Australia when it comes to the rights of the child in donor conception. Um, it says things like all donor conceived Queens people in Queensland have the right to know their biological parents no matter when they were born. Um, which is really important. It's not just, you know, from this point onwards, it acknowledges the pain and the trauma uh, and the obstacles facing donor conceived people who already exist, no matter what age they are. Um, and it says that, you know, there must be independent support and counselling uh, available for those people, which is, again, very important. Uh, we all have to pay for our own counselling. And, Usually it comes from people involved with the fertility industry who I believe have an indisputable conflict of interest. I, I would never recommend any donor conceived people see any counsellor who has worked for a fertility clinic. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it also says that if all parties are willing, that siblings should also be able to know each other's identity. And I think that is very important. I would argue they should go one step further. I think you should be able to know the identities of your siblings regardless so that you can protect yourself and manage your own physical health. Um, but knowing the identity of your biological half-brother or your parent or whatever does not mean contact with that person. You know, people always get very head up about the notion of privacy, but we have seen explained time and time again in various jurisdictions across Australia in adoption and donor conception, knowing does not equal contact. There is a system called contact vetoes, which work very well, are rarely deployed, uh, but provide that sort of separation between those two concepts and allow people to feel safe and comfortable. Um, so you get to know who, for instance, in Victoria, who your donor is, but having contact only happens with the consent of both parties. Yeah. Um, and I know that some, some people feel that that's pretty patronising and off, uh, but I think it's, I mean, it works. We know that it works and really, I mean, we shouldn't even be having the discussion about invading someone's privacy because it's that problem's been fixed. Yeah. I mean, I would even argue that vetoes, vetoes are unnecessary. You can put like just a statement of not wanting contact and, and that's why support um, services are so very important because that can help somebody who reaches out um, understand the other person's position and it also means that over time people can change, you know. Sometimes um, you may not want... Um, contact now but it might change down the track and and that's the reality of human relationships and just because you don't conceive or adoption doesn't mean you need extra laws about those things you can manage those relationships without having legislation for it see this is this is the amazing difference between adoption and donor conception you say those things and people are like yes very true but if i say those things about donor conception they're like what about the rights of the donor he said when he was 18 he didn't want to be contacted that's it. They said the same thing. They said the same thing about adoption. Um, and we had I the vetoes in the beginning, and but now they don't matter. And it's, it's because they don't matter. And we this don't need. We want to stand on the shoulders of you guys because you are giants. You have pushed through all these barriers and and we need to do that too. Well, um, I wish you all the very best with all of that. And um Yes, do look to our experiences because there is a lot that you can learn from it. And we've already done like all those hard yards. You don't need to make those mistakes again. Just open this thing up, do the right thing, let everyone figure it out. You're all, you know, adults now and um, and you've got the right to figure these things out for yourselves. One would hope. We're certainly going <laughs> to cause trouble. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. Um, as I said, I wish you all the best and everyone that's impacted by donor conception and, of course, Donor Conceived Australia, who we continue to work with. And um, good luck with advocating for your rights in the future of assisted reproduction in Australia. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And we'll put some relevant links up um, on our podcast notes page, including for Sarah's book, Brave New Humans, uh, on our podcast notes page. I think I already said that. And I highly recommend that you grab it and have a read. Um, you know, try not to throw it at the wall like I wanted to sometimes when I was just <laughs> raging about it. 
But before we say goodbye, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If so, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the perspective guest form that you'll find there. And note that a doc perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.